We are in our Theology of Work series, and last week Pastor Raymond kicked us off with the series, but this week we're going to be looking at rest from work, and we're going to dive into that, but we, would you just join me in a word of prayer first? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Give you thanks that it is foreign to us. It is alien to us. It is not the way in which we think. And so, Lord, it demands that our minds be shaped, formed and renewed, so that we may see the world, see things in the way that you see it. And so would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, as we read your word, as we hear you speak to us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first year of becoming a pastor, I experienced uh, insomnia for the first time in my life. Specifically, there was a season leading up to Easter where I was involved with the Trackers program and having to teach or preach every week for seven weeks in a row. I remember that that season culminated in the longest period that I have ever gone without sleep, three whole days. So for more than 50 hours, I went without any sleep and it was because I was so focused on what I needed to do that my brain would just not shut down even after I'd gone to bed. Even with my head on the pillow and my eyes closed, different scenarios of certain upcoming events and how I needed to deliver what I needed to say in the different sermons, the different talks, played over and over and over again in my head like a broken record, robbing me of the rest I desperately needed. While I've never had to endure such a long period of sleeplessness again, insomnia was a constant feature in the years of ministry that came after that. When people came over and asked me how I was, there were two words that were always on my lips. You guys know what those two words are? Tired and I'm busy. I'm tired and I'm busy. How are you today? Are you tired? Are you busy? Eight years later, after entering the ministry, I was given the privilege of going to study in Vancouver uh, at Regent College. And when I got there, even though I wasn't busy with ministry, I was relieved of all the responsibilities that I had, the language still stayed the same. Again, when friends there asked me how I was, my response was, you know, I've got two years to complete a three-year program, so I'm just trying to cram in as much as I can. I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And it was only on hindsight towards the end of my time at Regent College that I realized, even though I had gotten away from moving at light speed here in Singapore to a place where life was a lot slower, there was something within me that refused to slow down. And we often think that we are busy because of our external circumstances, don't we? But the reality is that our busyness stems from something within us. I suppose you can take the Singaporean out of Singapore, but it's much harder to get Singapore out of the Singaporean. And so I'm going to say it. As Singaporeans, we're crazy. Our pace of life and what we expect of ourselves as Singaporeans is insane. A year ago, the Singapore Business Review reported that Singapore is the most overworked country in Asia Pacific, clocking in more, more work hours than any other country, even more than China. And a survey by SMU showed 
that for every one Singaporean that prioritized life over livelihood, there were more than three Singaporeans prioritizing livelihood over life. And this has left us more unhappy than ever before, hasn't it? Another survey showed that 73% of employees were deeply unhappy with their circumstances, and at least 60% of us describe ourselves as burnt out. In some, we have come to think of ourselves as constantly evolving machines, marching to the tune of Daft Punk, with every passing moment working harder, better, faster, stronger. And this Singaporean work ethos is not just something out there, but something that has possessed us within the church, even here. We are addicted to our work, and it has become a curse rather than a blessing from God. So it's important for us to think, what is the relationship of us to our rest? Not just primarily of us to our work, but us to our rest. And so two things that I would like to suggest for us this morning that Scripture shows us. Firstly, the reason why we rest is because it is our God-given rhythm. But secondly, it is our God-given resistance. Why do we rest? It is our God-given rhythm, and it is our God-given resistance. So firstly, it is our God-given rhythm. In the first place, we see the command to observe the Sabbath is in Exodus 20, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. So I'm going to read that for us right now. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. And here is the rationale given. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. And so, the first reason that we are given for observing the Sabbath is because of the rhythm of creation. Six days of work and one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. And it sounds so simple, and we know this, but this rhythm is something we seriously struggle with because our imaginations are filled with the idea that we could get so much more done on that one day. You know, in preparing for this sermon, I realized that preaching about the Sabbath is probably one of the hardest sermons for pastors to preach because that week, we have one day less to prepare. Contrary to popular belief, pastors don't just work one day on Sunday. All right? We are very much workaholics. Spawned, I got that right. In 7.30, I say alcoholics, but workaholics... But this comes from a place of responsibility, doesn't it? For many of us, we feel as though working on a Sabbath is the only right thing to do because it is the responsible thing to do. If we don't get the work done, then who will? And so this responsibility ends up preventing us from observing the Sabbath. Now, just to recap, last week, Pastor Raymond preached the opening sermon for our sermon series on the theology of work. If you have yet to listen to that sermon, I suggest you go back to it so that you can track along with us in the series. But in it, Pastor Raymond talked about how God made us in his own image. To be clear, God's image, not Pastor Raymond's image. Okay? 
And this claim that we are made in the image of God is an astounding one because in the ancient Near East, the image of a God usually referred to one person only. And it was the king or the emperor. And yet here, the author of Genesis is saying that all humans, all humans are made in God's image. All of us, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, ability, or disability, we all have a God-given mandate to rule over creation, that is to work, to serve it, and to take care of it. That is our God-given responsibility, and that is astounding. But the other thing that Pastor Raymond talked about in that sermon was that we need to honour the limits of our work. And I want to stress this point a little bit more today, because the text of Genesis 1 and 2 not only describes us as being made in the image of God, but as creatures, that is, we are unmistakably part of the created order. Now, I read for us Genesis 2. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but the stream would rise up from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The first thing I want to say that is worth noticing here is that the human beings are described as nefesh chaya, that is a living creature, a living being. And this is the exact same term that is used for the creatures of the sea the birds of the air and the animals that move across the land in Genesis 1, verses 20, 21, 24, and verse 30. Exact same term. Because they, just like us, have been given the breath of life. So you and I, my friends, are no different from every other animal that's on the earth. But the other thing that we see is that humanity, the Adam, is intimately connected to creation, the stream, the aid, and the ground, the Adama. Now, we usually miss this in our English translations, but there's a very, very clear wordplay happening here in the Hebrew. The word for human being is a mere one-letter difference from the words used for stream and ground in verses 6 and 7. In other words, Scripture reminds us that though we are made in the image of the Creator, we are unmistakably part of His creation. Though human beings are given the dignity as God's representatives to rule over creation, to work and keep it, the text is clear that we are part of creation and intimately connected to it. There's not much difference between human and humus. We are limited beings, not unlimited. So when we hear the claim that we are made in the image of God, we must remember that we are called to be God's representatives, not His replacements. We are called to be God's representatives, not His replacements. And this, my friends, is good news for those of us who feel like we must be responsible for everything in, on, going on in our world, as if everything would fall apart if we stopped juggling the thousand and one balls that we have in the air, as if the world would spin out of orbit if we just sat down for a moment. Somehow, we have believed in a lie that we are indispensable to the world that we live in. 
I want to share with us uh, something that Eugene, Eugene Peterson once wrote about his experience of going on a year-long sabbatical. And I thought I'd share it here because it's uh, not just relevant for pastors, but for all of us. He said that when I proposed a sabbatical year, many people expressed excessive anxiety, anxiety that I would not return, anxiety that the church could not get along without me, anxiety that the life of faith and worship and trust that we had worked so hard to develop would disintegrate in my absence. But none of these fears were realized, not one, not even a little bit. The congregation thrived. They found they did not need me at all. They discovered they could be the church of Jesus Christ with another pastor quite as well as they could without me. I returned to a congregation confident in its maturity as a people of God. Now with a end quote there. Now with a spiritual giant like Eugene Peterson, I can firmly understand how anxious they all must have felt. I would have felt the same. I would have said the same. And the truth of the matter is that some of us bear the image of God so well that in some ways we have allowed them to take the place of God. Or from another angle, perhaps some of us have done so well in our work that we have allowed ourselves to take the place of God in our workplace. We make ourselves indispensable. But the good news of Genesis 2 is that we are not indispensable. If any of us were to disappear at this very moment, everything still carries on. And we must recapture the mindset that the only one who truly holds all things together, the only one who keeps things in orbit is God Himself. And our place in the world is to honour the rhythm that He has given His creation. On this note, have we ever noticed the chronology and how things go on the different days of Genesis 1? Six times we are told, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, on and on. Have we ever noticed that the text doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening? You see, from an Israelite perspective, the day begins when? In the evening, not in the morning. When human beings go to sleep, not when they start to work. In other words, the day begins with a firm trust that God is the one who holds the world in order. So we can take our hands off the steering wheel of our lives. Now I want to point out that the Sabbath rhythm is not only given to us by God, but something that is a part of His own nature. It is not something He just gives to His creation. It's part of who He is and this is most peculiar because we often affirm that God never grows tired, and rightfully so, because in Isaiah we read, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, and He does not grow weary. In Psalm 121 we read, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so... Because we affirm the fact that God does not tire or He does not sleep, I can understand the sentiment behind a modern worship song that goes like this. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. But this is not what we see with the Creator's own rhythm 
in Genesis 2, isn't it? This is not the Creator's rhythm. Verse 1, again, I read for us, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. On a seventh day, God finished the work that He had done, and He rested, and the word is Shabbat, to cease, to stop. He stopped all His work on the seventh day because He had finished it. And so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested, that's the word again, Shabbat, to stop from all the work that He had done in creation. God stops from His work. Even though our God does not tire, He ceases, He stops from His work. Now let's think of, take a moment to think about what that means. Because it means that you and I don't just rest when we get tired. Because often we think to ourselves, you know, I can still go a little bit more. I'm not that tired yet. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I often say I'm tired, but you know, really, I'm, I'm, I'm bursting at the seams with life right now and I just want to do a little bit more. It means, what this means is that we don't rest only when we get tired. It, we rest because if we don't, we go, we not only go against the grain of our createdness, but against the grain of our creator. We rest because if we don't, we not only go against the grain of our createdness, but against the grain of our Creator. And when we do, we get splinters. Tiredness does not necessitate our rest. Our Creator necessitates our rest. And we are called to honour that rhythm. A rhythm that He's given us as His creation has also found within Him as our Creator. But secondly, we go on. Why do we rest? Because it is our God-given resistance. Now note, Exodus 20 is not the only place where we see the Sabbath command. It also turns out in Deuteronomy 5, but with a key difference. And I think it's important that we pay attention to that key difference. In Deuteronomy 5 we read, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. And then hear the rationale in verse 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so in Exodus, we see what the Sabbath was in line with. In Exodus, the Sabbath was in line with God's rhythm for creation. But here in Deuteronomy, we see what the Sabbath stood against. The Sabbath stood against the economy of Pharaoh. Stood against the economy of slavery. Slavery to endless work. Now just for a recollection, this is what we are told in Exodus chapter 1. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war join our enemies and fight against us and escape land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread 
so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of few labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. And so what we see with Pharaoh is an economy of ruthless work. An economy that knows no limits to how much a person should labor. An economy that says, keep on keeping on. An economy that prizes efficiency and productivity. An economy that says, if you're not dead, you should be working. And we also notice that the Israelites were made to build supply cities. That is, entire cities whose sole purpose was to hoard Egypt's wealth and produce. And so to what ends were they to work? Towards the accumulation of more and more and more, and where there's no such thing as enough. And so this is what Sabbath command stood against. The oppressive economy of Pharaoh. God's people observed the Sabbath as a resistance against this sort of worldview. Listen again to what God says in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, You yourself are to speak to the Israelites. You shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, given in order that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on a Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, Israelites shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. My friends, do you notice the severity of the language here? The reason why the Sabbath is so important is because it stands against Pharaoh's economy. And God even describes it as a perpetual covenant. as berit olam, that is the word there, which can be translated as a forever covenant or a covenant for all of time. It is the everlasting symbol that His people live and work for Him, for Yahweh alone and no one else. They do not work for Pharaoh. They work for Yahweh. Now keep in mind that when the Sabbath command is given in Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing a people who have never lived under Pharaoh's rule. Because by the time we get to Deuteronomy, those who had lived under the oppression of Egypt have all passed away except for Joshua, Caleb and Moses himself. Or let me put it this way, even though the Israelites are no longer slaves under Pharaoh, they no longer live under his economy, they are still in danger of living under the values of his economy. And in case it's not already evident to you and I by now, even today, Pharaoh's economy haunts us. It's pretty much life that we live, isn't it? And I count myself especially guilty of this because I constantly think to myself, look, how much more I could accomplish if I just don't stop. In his book, Work and Worship, Matthew Kamink writes, 
Sabbath was a liturgical reminder to workers that Israel's economy would be a renewing economy that memorializes God's work in creation in contrast to a rapacious Egyptian economy that exhausts workers and material goods. Sabbath ritualistically trained workers to put down their tools and to open their hands so that they may learn to rely on Yahweh's work and not their own. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, Sabbath is the visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production or consumption and commodity. In other words, the observation of Sabbath makes the statement that we do not serve Pharaoh's economy. We do not serve the taskmasters of the age. The values of capitalism, productivity, and efficiency must not be our values because God is the one whom we ultimately work for. And so if we want to know whether we subscribe to Pharaoh's economy or God's economy, we only need to ask ourselves one simple question. And it's this. Do we see the Sabbath as an inconvenience or as a blessing? Do we see the Sabbath as an inconvenience or as a blessing? I confess I often see it as, as an inconvenience. Because I know it's something I ought to do but it does not fit in with the rhythm that I want to apply for myself because I live in Pharaoh's economy. I'll share with you a story. Several years ago, I remember uh, meeting an old school classmate from ACS who I hadn't seen in ages, but he wanted to ask me about going into full-time church ministry. And at that point, I remember he was working in a bank and earning considerable amount of money and I could tell that he was being really serious about counting the costs, making a switch in vocation from working in a bank into working in church. And so eventually the conversation reached a point where he asked me honestly how much I was earning as a pastor. And when I told him, he asked me, how do you know that's enough? How do you know that's enough? First, I didn't know what to say when he asked me that question. And so I asked him how much he was earning. And then I realized that he was earning more than twice what I was getting. And then I think the Lord impressed upon me to say this because it was not the thing that I was thinking about. God impressed upon me to ask him the question that he had asked me. How do you know that's enough? And after a pause and a smile... He was honest enough to tell me, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. That's the axiom of Pharaoh's economy. It's the axiom that, by which many of us live, not just in terms of how much we earn, but how much more can we accomplish. You know, Dallas Willard has this to say about our insatiable desire for more. He says, Our desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God, 
And when we fall away from God, desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction, towards restlessness, towards tiredness, towards busyness. And this is why St. Augustine says, You have made us for thyself, O God, and restless will our hearts be until it finds its rest in thee. See, friends, Pharaoh's economy says it's never enough. You can always do more. It can always be more perfect. Just don't stop. Never say no. Always say yes to more. But the good news for us is that there is another economy to live by. And it is one that looks at the work that is already done and says, it is good. 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 It is very good. Because that is what God does. On the seventh day, after the seven days, after six days of, of work, He says, it is finished. I've completed it all. I can rest. And that is something that is completely antithetical to the world that we live in because we are never able to say, it is finished and it is good. And God offers that to us. You know, my wife um, and I have de developed this liturgy that we realized that I needed to have because every Sunday after I was done preaching, I would come home and even though I was supposed to be with family, my mind was miles away, still thinking about, you know, maybe I should have said this in a different way. Maybe I could have improved on it another way. Maybe I should, have, I should not have said that. Maybe I should have said that instead. Oh man, this is the other thing that I need to be thinking about. And so to get me to stop, Michelle would come up to me and she would put her hands around my face and she would look me in the eyes. And then I would raise my hands and she would say, stop. And then I would say, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be a donkey. And that's a reference to Balaam's donkey. You know, God uses to speak through even though it's just donkey. And then I will repeat, because she says, say it. I'll say, it is good. She said, again, it is good. Again, it is good. But then she would say, no ifs and no buts. It is good and you can stop because it is finished. Friends, this is the good news. God offers this to us, not simply as a rhythm, but as a means to resist the crazy, crazy, insatiable demand for more and more and more in the economy that we live in. We can say, it is good, it is finished. He welcomes us to do so. Would you allow yourself to do that? Let's pray. It is good. 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 It is very good. Lord, you have created us with this rhythm. 
You created within us this need to stop and rest, not because we are tired, but because of the way in which you have instituted this world that we live in. And we would be fools to go against our maker, to go against our creator. And so would you help us, Lord, receive your rhythm to abide by it so that we may be full once again. Would you help us resist the idols and the gods of our age that we so easily worship because we think it's never enough. But it is enough, Lord. It's enough. It's enough because you said it is. And as you invite us into that, would you help us to lay down everything and to rest in you? As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.